You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Do you like the cover? Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, who I, I who just, did it? Who selected well, that? Well, I, 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 I've selected all my cover art oh, for really? every book. And, um, yeah, I just found this in a, it was a gallery, a catalog from a gallery in New York. And mm. I I can't explain it, but I saw it, and I just said, that's that's it. It's uh, perfect. I, I don't know why, but <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, sometimes with the marketing department at Random House, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they want to know, you know, how can we sell this book? And they would say, well, what's the airplane got to do with anything? Is that is horoscopes, airplane? And they, they want a kind of more a clear fit, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, no, there's something about it that seems just perfect. And it has to be, <laughs> be with up above the clouds and the prop and just the way this kind of like it's looking at you. Yeah, right? it's and coming it's... right at you. And it has a kind of draftsman-like quality. And I think it reminds me of my boyhood, too. Yeah, really yeah. into airplanes and drawing planes and all that stuff. Did you have a drafting board? I had a drafting no. board and a T-square, and, oh, and yeah. I just loved to make the little kind of architectural drawings. I always yeah. liked that kind of style. I still like drawing uh, ships, you know, uh, yeah. and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's some more more boy boyhood stuff. Right? Yeah. And then I, I actually, I love this thing so much, I, I talked to the gallery and I said, I, I'm, I'm thinking of buying it maybe, you know, mm-hmm. how much is it? So they said, well, it's it's $6,000, but we'll give you 50% off for wow. poet's discount. And then I got a call from my editor at Random House and he said, we've got a problem with the uh, painting. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, you, you can't buy that painting. And I said, well, why not? He said, Random House just bought it for you. It was so sweet. That's very nice. And my my agent said, "You can't get a bottle of scotch out of a publisher these days when you publish a book. You know that the budgets are so tight." Mm. But um, my editor said, "We just realized you've been with us for ten years," and I didn't even I wasn't counting. <laughs> and this was my so I've got this hanging in my my study. You know, it's beautiful, it's cool. Yeah, you can start recording whenever. <clears throat> oh. oh, okay, good, good, good. I'm glad you got that. I like that. <clears throat> Um, Billy, why don't you just pick a poem out to read, and then I'll do my introduction, and then we'll go. Okay. Well, we were just talking about boyhood. So there's a poem called "The Straightener" here, which is uh, really a poem about procrastination. I think ultimately, uh, the straightener. Even as a boy, I was a straightener. On a long table near my window, I kept a lantern, a spyglass, and my tomahawk. Never tomahawk, lantern, and spyglass. Always lantern, spyglass, tomahawk. You could never tell when you would need them, but that was the order you would need them in. On my desk, pencils at attention in a cup, foreign coins stacked by size, a photograph of my parents, and under the heavy green blotter, a note from a girl I was fond of. These days, I like to stack in pyramids the cans of soup in the pantry, and I keep the white candles in rows, like logs of wax. And if I can avoid doing my taxes or phoning my talkative aunt on her 80-something birthday, I will use a ruler to measure the space between the comb and the brush on the dresser, the distance between the shakers of salt and pepper. Today, for example, I will devote my time to lining up my shoes in the closet, pair by pair, in chronological order, and lining up my shirts on the rack by color to put off having to tell you, dear, what I really think and what I now am bound to do. Billy Collins was the Poet Laureate of the United States of America. He is the Distinguished Professor of English at Lehman College, Distinguished Fellow at Winter Park Institute at Rollins College. He's the author of The Trouble with Poetry, Sailing Alone Around the Room, Nine Horses and Ballistics. His newest collection of poems is Horoscopes for the Dead. Thank you for joining me, Billy. Uh, Very nice to be here. Billy, it seems to me that... um, your last poem is, is such an interesting poem. I have to admit that I'm one of these fellows who has, I have, I color coordinate my shirts. A blue shirt goes on a blue hanger. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> a little crazy. 
just a little bit. But, but you're man enough to admit it. Yeah, they like they like that part. Now, uh, talk about using these kind of precise habits to give your take yourself away from your personal your feelings and yeah. and then bringing yourself back to your feelings with poetry that describes the precise habits and the poetry itself is precise well so it, it does uh, <laughs> that's interesting it does make a kind of circle there um, well I you know I guess we're just always talking you know poets about a handful of things and um, you know that's that is a love poem the straightener it's 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 sort of a love of things in the beginning but at the end of the poem, there's a twist there because what the speaker is doing is uh, putting off breaking uh, some bad news to someone. It sounds like to me at the end of a relationship, and uh, I'm, I'm going to—I don't want to break this news to you. I don't want to leave you, really. I think the implication is what I'm bound to do is to end this relationship, and I'm so reluctant to do that that, uh, that I will put that off through um, the sort of obsessive-compulsive types of procrastination, like ordering everything on the desk and, and that. So it kind of begins as a boyhood poem, you know, of tomahawk. I mean, I don't think kids have tomahawks today. Uh, parents wouldn't put up for, you know. I mean, kids have to wear crash elements to eat their cereal these days. So I don't know if uh, parents would let them have stuff like lanterns and tomahawks. But, you know, there was that spirit of adventure when I was a child, you know, cowboys and Indians, that kind of thing. And You'd always be prepared for these emergencies. Um, and I just kind of spun that into, uh, you know, shifting to today and how, uh, you know, a, the persona, the speaker likes to get things organized and very fussy about uh, about organization. And then you find out at the end that um, he's organizing things because he uh, he's in a crisis. He doesn't, he has a piece of very bad news to break to somebody and um, he'd rather uh, put that off. You have a, a number of observations of uh, relationships with women in in this collection, and in, inevitably, <laughs> and they're, they're they they they're not all that happy. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'd like you. I really like uh, the drawing you from memory. That, yeah, that's such a a, a beautiful poem, and, and it has such an unexpected end to it. Right. Well, it's a. Uh... Yeah, it's a poem. It's a, it's a, of course, it's a love poem. And I must say, I mean, uh, you're noticing uh, obviously a trend in this book. Um, and behind pretty much every poem, there's a little autobiographical nugget of information. But you can also say that these poems are in the tradition of the love poem. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually right. I started writing a poem yesterday, and I'm working on it today and I'll work on it tomorrow. It's a love poem, but I'm not thinking of any particular person in my life. I'm, I'm just, I'm in the tradition of the love poem and I found a, a kind of a new way, I think, to write a love poem. And I'm, um, but, um, so, but yeah, there's uh, that poem, Drawing You From Memory, starts as a, a very affectionate poem about being away from someone and, you know, drawing them um, and trying to remember what they looked like. And then um, it ends with um, a kind of confrontation with a very jealous uh, woman, as it turns out. <laughs> you know, I, it strikes to me that your new form of the love poem, I really like this form. And this is a kind of a poem in style in general that you have that I would kind of call poems of denial, where you won't necessarily tell us what it is, but you'll tell us really clearly what it isn't. Uh, right, or I'll tell you how it is. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, I'm thinking well, think, of Litany from your last book. Yeah, yeah, like what you're not, all mm -hmm. the things you're not. I was. Uh, well, I think someone put it the, this way that you know my poems sort of start out very straightforward uh, and kind of literal, and uh, and then something happens. You know, uh, the poem takes a tur turn, or the poem gets bent into a different kind of shape, and. Uh, and for me, I recognize that as a strategy. It's also a way of keeping my interest as I'm writing uh, because as I write a poem, I'm always looking for some little door to open that uh, will take me into a different room that I didn't know existed exactly or a room that, in fact, I'm going to create um, uh, because it's been accessed by the beginning of the poem. So, um, 
Yeah, that's part of the uh, intellectual and uh, imaginative uh, pleasure for me is uh, is the ex is the satisfaction of that curiosity. Where is this poem going? I mean, you know, we we don't know. I think in good poems, uh, we don't know the ending before we start. And um, usually, poems that are sure of their endings before they start aren't very interesting. Um, William Butler, Butler Yeats talked about poems written by the will and, and poems written by the imagination. And a poem written by the will, you know what you want to say, and damn it, you sit down and say it. You know, there's no no surprise for anybody. And poems written by the imagination, you start out with a little something, and through a kind of negotiation with the language, and a uh, which is basically uncooperative, <laughs> uh, you 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 find you find a way to to get to a new place. Well, I'd say the language cooperates with you more often. <laughs> well, you, uh, haven't eventually. Seen, you haven't seen my wastebasket. <laughs> you you mean the uh, unborn children? Uh, well, that is certainly, I mean, I didn't see that ending coming <laughs> at all. Um, uh, that was kind of inspired by a line from uh, Zimborska who said, I think it's, uh, I forget the quote exactly, it's here somewhere, but of all your children, only those who were born which suggested that we all have unborn children. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just, um, do you want me to read that for you? Yeah, or, l- yeah, let's read that one. I like that because... It ends up in a, in a particularly odd place, I think. <clears throat> uh, my unborn, the line from Zimborska is, of all your children, only those who were born. My unborn children, I have so many of them, I sometimes lose track Several hundred last time I counted, but that was years ago. I remember one was made of marble, and another looked like a penguin some days, and on other days a white flower. Many of them appeared only in dreams, or while while I was writing a poem, with freezing fingers in the house of a miser. Others were more like me, looking out the window in a worn shirt, than later staring into the dark. None of them ever made the lacrosse team, but they all made me as proud as I was on the day they failed to be born. There is no telling, maybe tonight or later in the week, another one of my children will not be born. I see this next one as a baby, lying naked below a ceiling pasted with stars, but only for a little while. Then I see him as a monk in a gray robe, walking back and forth in the gravel yard of an imaginary monastery, his head bowed, wondering where I am. So beautiful. It's very sad. Yeah. At the end there. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's odd how you can kind of uh, create an emotion about something that's completely imaginary, I guess. But uh, this uh, this baby who grows into a monk and then he's suddenly wondering where his, where his dad is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's odd. But it's, I guess getting myself into this odd little hypothetical strange, uh, like Alice in Wonderland kind of place is uh, what I like to do. It's, it's how, you know, it's, it's the, one of the big pleasures of, the, of writing the poems. I, I think it, you know, you, you mentioned Alice in Wonderland, and I think that's an, uh, an important clue to us as, as readers because I think there is a kind of the way you work the language. Um, you're building something fantastic and you don't know what it is and it's not a creature of fantasy what you're building what your centaurs your gnomes your dragons are the poems you create well that's a good use of the word fantastic not in a uh, the flattering word way but in a the the real meaning of the word that it, it is a kind of movement into fantasy uh yeah i was thinking maybe a title for a book of poems would be uh, the rabbit hole, you know. I mean, that's, uh, any of these poems, I guess, slip down a kind of rabbit hole into a new dimension and where we find all sorts of strange creatures, not the Queen of Hearts or the Cheshire Cat, but we find uh, a monk, you know, in a, gra- a robe wondering where his father is and wondering where I am, <laughs> my, my son, the monk. <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that... Uh, I struck me that I, I really like about this this book is that um, there's a lot of poems in here of, of, that have to do with uh, what I would call that age that we're coming to, that our generation is coming to, where our parents have passed away and 
where we both feel ourselves to be like our parents in terms of maturity, but also simultaneously we still feel like little children and and are capable, unfortunately, <laughs> of, 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 behaving, acting. Yes, yeah. of acting like little children. Yeah, acting out. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that... Um, uh, your the poem that that opens the book Grave gives a a good a good uh, picture of that, and, and I'd like you to talk just about you know you poems are so concerned with time you don't have a lot of time in a poem, yeah. and they're concerned with meter and right. and your poetry a, a lot of the poems in here really do speak to the passage of time and, and yeah. how differently it can pass for us. Well, you don't have a lot of time in a poem, and you don't have a lot of time out of a poem either. You know, I mean, that's why, <laughs> that's why carpe diem is the most resonant theme in, uh, in poetry. Uh, we're asked to you know, carpe our diems because we don't have an infinite uh, number of them. I think historically, you know, poetry used to be about history, I mean, if you go back to Homer or something like that, uh, or sagas or epic poetry, um, poems chronicle these uh, big historical movements and events. Uh, eventually, uh, it lost interest in that because other forms of writing took over the recording of history. And now, I think probably since Wordsworth and company, uh, poems are not about history, they're about time. And they're about the romance of time. And by the romance of time, I mean that we're running out of it. You know, the time as a, uh, um, the vibrant awareness of time passing, which is then entangles you instantly with uh, questions of mortality. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a very, uh, very ancient concern in, in poetry, the, the sense of looking through the lens of death and seeing life from that point of view. And uh, if it's perceived like that, um, it uh, the awareness of mortality tends to intensify, heighten, uh, italicize experience, you know, make it a little more, um, uh, make it in a kind of less recessed and more immediate. And that's really the, um, the, the cry behind a lot of poems is uh, asking the, its reader to wake up, uh, pay attention, um, be grateful, because the, that kind of attention to experience and the idea that you're running out of time, you're running out of sand, um, should result in gratitude for what you have. You know, that makes me think, too, that one of the things that you do so well with your poetry is to do the job of poetry. <laughs> and, and because when we think every time some kind of new art form comes along, um, it's always perceived that what has come before is no longer going to be relevant. So that when film came along, novels, every, it's the end of novels. When radio comes along, it's the end of film. When TV comes along, it's the end of radio. But really, everything has its place. And I think one of the things your poems do is really capture what the place of poetry is in our cultural lives by being so compact and speaking so directly and clearly to us. Mm -hmm. um, yet you have do have that element of the fantastic in the way you use the language and use language to take us to a place mm -hmm. where we wouldn't otherwise think of being able to go. Well, all that sounds, sounds true. <laughs> I... Uh... Yeah, it's sort of like um, going back to boyhood. It's sort of like hiding from other people, you know, like hide, hide. Sometimes I remember games of hide and seek would uh, would become final in that you would never be found. You know, you would hide so well that no one could find you, and that was really an accomplishment. Now, in a poem, uh, the analogy might be that I'm kind of moving the poem into such a private, odd place of my own invention that the reader has to find me, you know? It's like, find, follow me and try to find out where we are. And I, I, really like, um, I really like readers to be a bit disoriented at the end of some of these poems. You know, how at the end of a, sh a Shakespeare sonnet, there's that closing couplet that, that locks the poem in and very satisfying, full closure, you know? And, uh, but I think with a lot of my poems, um, forgive the comparison even, but uh, there's a kind of trailing off, there's a ending up in some little, little, little corner of something that is uh, 
uh, a bit puzzling. You know, um, uh, I I love the the poem "The Snag." <laughs> what are you talking about? Wanting a time machine to, <laughs> to yeah, go see uh, your your uh, grandfather's back hairpiece? Go back and kill my grandfather for <laughs> causing my baldness. <laughs> and then, of course, I realized that if I kill him, I kill my mother and therefore myself. So I really have to live with <laughs> live with my uh, genetic inheritance. Well, you know. Um, but that kind of uh, uh, again, that's another interesting look at you know the importance of time in our lives. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit science fictional actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a comic a comic science fiction to go back in time and and realize that if you start playing with uh, rearranging the past, that your chances are you're going to screw up the present and perhaps completely eradicate yourself. So uh, it's not nice to fool with Father Time, uh, just as it's nice not nice to fool with Mother Nature. <laughs> well, you have a good sense of, of humor, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that makes your poems, you know, uh, your poetry so much fun. And, and poetry should be fun. I'm not. I'm a lot of poets bristle at the idea of poetry as entertainment, but um, if you look back over the centuries, uh, poetry had a you know clear entertainment value of uh, you know enlivening an audience and 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 causing pleasure. In in Wordsworth's um, forgive the professor emerging from me, but in Wordsworth's uh, preface to lyrical ballads, where he's explaining uh, this new kind of poetry he's writing, he uses the word pleasure over fifty times or so. Um, and as the as the aim of poetry, and uh, obviously um, humor is a way of giving pleasure, but it's also, for me, humor is a way of uh, accessing other uh, areas that are not so funny. You know, I, I think humor is um, part of a poem's modulation at best. I mean, a poem might start funny and then modulate into something darker or more serious, or a poem might start on a serious note and then. Um, modulate into uh, being ironic about itself. Uh, poems that are just funny throughout uh, are, I think, less uh, less pleasurable or offer a, a different kind of pleasure. There's a poem in, in this collection, I'm trying to, to remember it, that starts out with the word funny and ends up being not so funny itself. Um, hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, but that's something that that's that's nice. Another thing I noticed as I read these poems is that one of the things that poems can do really well is remind us of other things, other works we've read, um, other to take us, you know, outside of the poem itself, and then thus bring it back in. And I was thinking of uh, your poem, the symbol. Uh-huh. Where you have two mirrors that that kind of face one another, and that's just so evocative of of you know that it, it was a poem that took me back to my college years of reading Borges and all all his mirrors, and also an old story by William Ten, uh. a science fiction writer that had a, a kind of a an idea of travel in order to travel if you had. We're going to send something into the past. Something was going to go into the future to counterbalance it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That that poem, the the symbol is uh, in the form of a fairy tale. You know, it it starts uh, once upon a time there were two oval mirrors, and uh, it ends by saying, "And the two mirrors who lived repetitively ever after." So it has a <laughs> fairy tale frame to it. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm playing with that image of the that we find. Or used to find in the traditional barbershops, where you'd have this uh, hall of mirrors that would occur when mirrors face each other, and there you would be getting your haircut, uh, receding into this infinite, <laughs> you know, infinite glass corridor. Uh, again, I think poets are end up talking about the five or six things that human life is about, you know, including love and grief and separation. Um, but we're always looking for new metaphors, you know, like the barbershop mirrors or or straightening things in a closet or some little human um, bit of experience that then can be mined, you know, that that has, it has possibilities to uh, get us back to the point where we're talking about, you know, love or sorrow or... You know, um, 
also poetry by being virtue of being so compact it it has to remind us of, of the importance of language and the importance of every single word well it, it's true i mean uh i think charles wright says that said that poetry is language that um, sounds better and means more than regular language and a lot of um a lot of my revision is just very small things. You know, there, there could be like a phrase like, you know, should it be uh, a barking dog or the barking of a dog or, um, you know, the, all the other variations? How does, which one sounds better and which one is uh, more rhythmic um, with the line? You know, which one is, has a better sense of cadence? And... For a lot of people, this would seem insane, you know, to spend, <laughs> to spend, agonize about these tiny changes about, you know, what what pronoun or should it be the or and. I mean, there was a story about, there was a, a kind of, um, there's a book called Japanese Death Poems where uh, there are poems written by Zen masters on their deathbeds. And there was a kind of tradition that um, ideally, you, uh, you would, uh, just before you expired, you would uh, give forth a haiku or something that would be your final exhalation. And there's one of them, uh, that a story about the uh, something like the Zen master just before he dies says, uh, at dawn, a cuckoo cries or something like that. And then the two students after he dies are saying, did he say the cuckoo cried or a cuckoo cried? <laughs> so they're labor, they're trying to figure out. But that's that's the stu- that's the kind of getting down on your knees with the language. And you know, should it be a or the? Should it be the barking of a dog or a barking dog or a dog barking? You know, uh, and, and that's that's the pleasure of poetry um, in making it right. You know, uh, William Matthews said that revision. In poetry, is uh, is not cleaning up after the party. Revision is the party. You know, making it right is the, what you want to do. Making it as good as possible. Could you read the title poem? I could. I have. You know, it's it's a kind of a long poem, and I I, I was going to read it the other day um, in a similar circumstance, and I realized that I. I could make a kind of a, can I read a kind of abbreviated version of it? You can read whatever okay. version you so desire. <laughs> All right, um, you're the it, poet. Okay, um, I'll just say that it's the title poem of the book. It's called Horoscopes for the Dead, and it was occasioned after a friend, a very dear friend of mine, died a couple of years ago, and uh, I caught myself in the uh, in the days and weeks that followed. Whenever I'd come across a horoscope, my eyes would kind of drift over to his sign, and I'd read his horoscope, um, and I was reminded of the kind of odd futility of, of continuing to do that. Horoscopes for the Dead Every morning since you disappeared for good, I read about you in the daily paper, along with the box scores, the weather, and all the bad news. Some days I am reminded that today will not be a wildly romantic time for you, nor will you be challenged by educational goals, nor will you need to be circumspect at the workplace. So don't worry today or any day about problems caused by your unwillingness to interact rationally with your many associates about postponing a weighty decision. No more goals for you, no more romance, no more money or children, jobs or important tasks, but then again, you were never thus encumbered. So leave it up to me now to plan carefully for success and the wealth it may bring, to beware of false friends, and to welcome any intellectual stimulation that comes my way, though that sounds like a lot to get done on a Tuesday. I am better off closing the newspaper, putting on the same clothes I wore yesterday when I read that your financial prospects were looking up, than pushing off on my copper-colored bicycle and pedaling along the shore road by the bay. And you stay just as you are, lying there in your beautiful blue suit, your hands crossed on your chest, like the wings of a bird who has flown in its strange migration, not north or south, but straight up from earth and pierced the enormous circle of the zodiac. Billy Collins reading the title poem from his book, Horoscopes for the Dead. You know, that poem has such a wonderful, gentle sense of humor. 
yet it also points out something. I, I really like horoscopes. Not that I necessarily believe in them, but I think that what what you point out in this poem is that they're little bits of language that, like poems, get you out of your own life and get you out of your own perspective. I mean, and, and I think that's one of the things that poetry can do does really well is to just take you out and give you another perspective. Well, because one of the things, if you look at the poem as a bit of language, which it is, uh, one of the poems that thing is doing besides being really a kind of elegy for my friend um, is um, playing with the sort of the cliches of, of horoscope language. I mean, uh, when I began to write the poem, I indeed... Um, got a bunch of USA Todays or whatever the local paper would be and um, and looked at a bunch of horoscopes and lifted some of the language from there. But, you know, it's either you're going to go on a, uh, a trip or uh, you have romantic opportunities and uh, at the workplace things will be difficult. There's, you know, there's a very set uh, number of... Uh, of predictions uh, for your life. And so the poem is kind of a parody uh, of that kind of language. At the same time, it's an elegy for my friend. And that's a, like a two-tone poem. You know, you, you, people, um, if I, I've read this uh, to audiences, and, and they laugh because it's, uh, I think, the language, they recognize these horoscope cliches. Um, and at the end of the poem, they stop laughing because they realize it comes back. There is a real... Uh, person, a real loss behind the poem, and uh, we end up really in the coffin of that person. And uh, and then he's released uh, through the image of the bird who goes up and not exactly to heaven. Uh, I don't want to end up in that certain place, but the bird flies up straight up and pierces the uh, circle of the zodiac, so it goes beyond uh, our into some other realm. You know, So it's a release of my friend at the end. One of the poems that that just really knocked my socks off was the one um, uh, "Chairs No One Sits In," and, and I don't know why, but that that one just really caught uh, to me. Well, that's that's a um, just another observation. I mean, often if you drive around, oh, anywhere, the suburbs or the country, or probably not the city so much, but you see, like on people's lawns, you see a couple of usually two chairs, and um, or on a porch or something, and uh, there never seems to be anybody using these chairs. They're kind of they were set up there. Um, it's sort of a romantic sense of a symbol of leisure that no one is experiencing, you know, in that family. Uh, so it's just it was a meditation on all these empty chairs. And then the suggestion at the end of the poem was, you know, it's none of my business, but it might be nice if everyone who set up these chairs actually sat in them one day and uh, reminded themselves why they set them up in the first place and what you could see from those chairs. Was it a view of a lake or a tree or something? Because the, the chairs seem uh, very... Uh, very consciously positioned, you know, on a lawn or something like that. But uh, 99 out of 100 times you go past them, there's nobody there. Or maybe 100 times out of I just don't see people sitting in those chairs very much. Well, the poem has such a nice, for me, it had a, a sense of longing of, you know, the all the emotions that go into to making something like that. And, and yet there's nothing there. Well, it's asking, it's sort of uh, asking people to, 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 asking people to sit in those chairs, to ask them to do that is to ask them to, uh, to shift into a more poetic gear in a way, you know, to slow down, to tap the brakes, to come to some kind of um, a place of solitude and, 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 and calm where you are left with your own su subjectivity. Rather than uh, you know to break away from, uh, good Lord, I mean the the the, the level of distractions and the, the culture we're living in now with uh, electronic distractions and uh, virtual realities and uh, and Facebook and that kind of thing. Um, there's so many uh, things calling for our attention and and really luring us into this virtual world where we have to establish a virtual identity and then keep and then keep feeding it, you know, by by posting every three minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, so the poem just asks people, 
sit in a chair and 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 look at a look at a tree or something. Not because it's it's not like a nature poem, like looking at trees is particularly beneficial to anybody. It just means stop. It's like a meditative call. Just uh, stop blabbering and turn off the television and sit there with yourself, and stuff will bubble up. It'll often become more interesting than television, even. <laughs> you know, as I read this collection of poems, I think one of the great things about reading poetry, especially your poetry, is that um, <clears throat> we start to actually think and hear the poetry and language, and we think in those terms, and it puts like a, a template on our thoughts. And I think that's a really good thing, I, uh-huh. because the nature of poetic language is to slow down and make you think and make you stop and understand and think about the yeah. words. Well, that's why poems have... Um, I mean, that's one effect of, the, of a poem coming in lines. You know, I mean, someone defined poetry as uh, an arrangement of words uh, in lines whose length is determined by some principle other than the width of the page. I mean, that's how we recognize that, that something is a poem from, you know, from tw- 20 feet away. Uh, it does not fill the page the way prose does. It discreetly occupies part of the page and creates, therefore, a silence around itself. So there is in a poem, a poem becomes a kind of habitable space that you enter and, um, and, and that encloses you, as opposed to reading a novel where you're just, you, you are, you know, rushing forth and being pulled out by, usually by curiosity about what's going to happen next. You're being pulled through a series of sentences and paragraphs until you get to the end, but you're not occupying uh, a field of language in the same way that you are with a poem. Because with a poem, it's more like a room that you kind of step into. And um, and then you find yourself in, a, in another room you didn't know existed. You write a lot of poems of place, both um, places in the world and places in our life, and sometimes both at once. And um, so uh, you, do you live in Florida? Or do you just spend a lot of time there? Well, I live in New York and Florida. I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back and forth because I have kind of two positions. So, uh, but I've um, I've been uh, spending uh, some time and a considerable time in Florida, and because of that, uh, uh, various kinds of uh, animals and uh, otters and um, birds, you know, um, ospreys and. Uh, Lizards and all sorts of things have kind of uh, crept into the poems. I've had a hard time getting used to lizards. I guess like lizards are kind of like the mice of the Northeast. Mm. You know, if you see a mouse in your house, it's no big deal. I mean, they're gentle creatures that you live with, I think. Um, but lizards are another thing entirely. And in in, in the tropics or subtropics, you uh, one sees... Uh, Birds walking around. That if you saw a bird like this in New York, you would you'd call somebody. I mean, <laughs> call a friend or call the police or something. You know, there's such an odd array of uh, so it's uh, a very uh, very exotic to me a very exotic location. And I have to ask, did you were did you actually see the Iquets in Riverside, California? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I did. I was. Uh, uh, it was 1960. Five maybe, and uh, the Ike and Turner Review with the Icats was they were playing in in local bars. This was a bar called the Top Hat, uh, African American bar, and uh, um, my friend and I just went out to to have some drinks, and and there they were. You know, and that was before they became really well known and and got you know played in big uh, big stages. So. Yeah, and I went backstage and uh, proposed to the iCats. It was a crowning moment of <laughs> my uh, in my life of indulgence. But I I got down on my one knee and I I asked all three of the iCats uh, that I would marry one of them, two of them, or three of them. It didn't make any difference. But I, I wanna I was proposing marriage in a kind of a general way. <laughs> they got a laugh out of it. Well, it's a it's a wonderful poem because it really does preserve a a kind of moment and, and takes us gives us a, a vision of you that is provides some perspective on the rest of your work. That's that's fun and unusual. Well, probably I think um, 
most of my poems involve this persona, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of observational self that, and autobiographical content kind of leaks through that persona and colors uh, some of his observations. But um, that poem about uh, uh, about um, the '60s and and going to see Ike and Tina Turner, uh, that's unusual because it's a very directly autobiographical poem that that did happen, and and saying it really happened is the always the poorest defense for a poem. You know, uh, a lot of young poets say, well, this this is the way it happened, though. And um, that's not what poetry is about, recording what happened. That's uh, what uh, journalists do. Now, uh, I think that um, your poem, The Flaneur, um, and is one of these poems, and there are a few of them in this book, that when I read them, I had to immediately reread it. I mean, I would just finish it and then just bang right back at the beginning again is and that I, a good thing yeah yeah no it's a very good thing it's <laughs> it's because it um you didn't you weren't thinking what the hell was going on there or no 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 it's not that, not that i was thinking what the hell was going on there it's that i was thinking i have to re-experience this yeah well that's nice it's like getting getting like if you go to the amusement park and go on a ride and you want to get right back on when you're a kid let's do that again you know? <laughs> i know i mean reading um Great poems for like I mean Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey. I've, I've read that a hundred and twenty times. I don't know, and I actually read it a few weeks ago, and it was just great to get back on again and and, and go through it. So I, well, I, that's very uh, very complimentary. Thank you. Well, you talk about that too with uh, John Donne. Yeah, about memorizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I have a poem in this book. Uh, about trying to memorize a poem by John Donne and how uh, the difficulties of memorization and the, and then, of course, the satisfaction of uh, finally uh, managing to, you know, really internalize someone else's poem and make it part of your uh, part of your mental construction or something at least to to reach out and know it's there. And, and too, this this collection, I think more than the last, if I'm not mistaken, has, um, more work about reading, and we get more of a feel for some of your reading. And you, you've been reading uh, Dante lately. He's in here uh, mm. <laughs> quite a few times. Uh, I, I guess um, at some point in my writing, I, I realized it's okay to it's okay to include stuff you know. And I think when I wrote as a very young poet, it was. The poems took place in a kind of abstract emotional uh, vapor that had you know, very little to do with certain aspects of my life, such as, you know, what am I reading? What am I studying? I mean, I went to graduate school and got a Ph.D. and taught English uh, in college for most of my life. So clearly uh, a good fraction of my experience w- was literary. And um, But I think uh, uh, a poet's um, career or progress can maybe be measured by the number of aspects of of his or her life that that are allowed into the poetry. So in the beginning, I I wasn't allowing humor into the poetry. I didn't think it was uh, permissible to be humorous in poetry. Or if you wanted to be humorous in poetry, you did it at your own risk because you would be demoted to the condition of light verse. I was, I, I was, uh, my father had a, a, an amazing sense of humor, and I always thought I had a good sense of humor. But when I wrote poetry, I put on my poetry goggles and I got, pretended to be dead serious. So it took a while. It took reading uh, poets like Philip Larkin and Kenneth Koch and Ron Padgett to uh, make me realize that you could be, you could be funny and serious at the same time. In the case of Philip Larkin, you could be uh, funny and, and really darkly serious. Um, and it was the same with reading. You know, I, I have poems about reading John Donne. I references to Dante and um, other poets. And um, I think one grows, or at least one maintains one interests in one one's writing by allowing aspects of of oneself to come into the poetry that were because of reasons of self-imposed decorum uh, uh, were ex- previously uh, previously excluded. Well, you know, one of the things that, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, 
there's a reason this guy is really popular. And, <laughs> Tell and, me about and, it. And, well, it's because you're funny and you, you're warm and sweet. You really capture life. The poems are easy to read. We never feel we're being lectured to. And then I thought, well, you know, if you say somebody's a popular novelist, it's kind of a notch against them. If you say they're a popular musician, it's kind of a notch against them. If you say they're a popular poet, man, that's great. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's really interesting, that with poetry. Popularity is kind of a, a, a plus, I think. Huh. I, I see it just the opposite way. I oh, think, really? of, I, Yeah, I think a popular novelist, people feel, well, novelists should be popular. That's what mm. they're, they're aiming for because, you know, after all, a novel can sell uh, hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, mm. And if, it, uh, if Oprah gives it her stamp of approval, it's that there's a, maybe a, a quarter of a million copies sold right there. And it can be turned into a movie. There's um, options and all sorts of uh, 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 possibilities of wide, wide acclaim and popularity. I think popular poet is really more of an oxymoron, um, <laughs> and also it's a seems to stimulate resentment from people. Mm. And the, and oddly, these are the same people who tend to wring their hands and decry the lack of an audience for poetry in contemporary America. And then um, when uh, poets become popular, they, they are accused of kind of selling out or being under-conceptualized or, or um, um, you know, uh, pandering, pandering mm. to an audience. So you can't win. You know I mean? <laughs> well, I, 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 can, I think uh, we should have uh, Steven Spielberg adapt this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, all for, I'm all for that. And, and Oprah should take a good look at it, too. I, I agree. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it does strike me too, though, that that poetry really has an important. This collections like this make me think poetry has a really important place at our cultural table. That we we need it. We still need it. It's not ever going to go away. It's not ever going to fade. Um, and it's it's really more important now than ever because we do live in an era, on one hand, of so much distraction. And also, on one hand, where the brevity of poetry is really appreciated. I mean, heck, Twitter gives you 140 characters. Yeah, I, uh, I'm often surprised that I mean, I, I'm not a big, you know, drum banger for poetry. I mean, the fact that most people do not read poetry; it's not part of their lives. It doesn't keep me up at night, or even irritate me. Um, but sometimes I think, I wonder why, because. As you said, a poem is short. Uh, it takes 30 seconds or a minute and a half to read a, a lyric poem. Um, it's like kind of a quick delight. Uh, there's, If it's a good poem, there's imaginative play. It's an interesting use of language. It seems like it would be more a more common pleasure. Um, the candy bar of literature. Take a bite. <laughs> it's not going to hurt you. It's like a, uh, like a box of candies. I don't want to sound like, what's his name, but... Uh, it's, but it has a lot to do with the way we're educated. I think the first time we encounter poetry, once we get beyond the you know primal love of language that we experience in childhood, um, the next time we encounter poetry is in the classroom. And, uh, and horrible things can be done and are done to poetry in the classroom. Well, it seems I, I was thinking about this in general, that uh, the way literature is taught sometimes almost seems it's designed to make you not want to read. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't like poetry, and some of them actually teach English. <laughs> uh, you know, I just wanted to bring back this back to, to the passage of time. And your collection ends with, with something that's – it's your it's – your, uh, 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 the Reichenbach Falls moment. What uh, is the Reichenbach uh, Falls moment? Uh, at uh, Sherlock Holmes, oh, okay. and Professor you. Moriarty went over Reichenbach Falls. Oh, no, okay. because uh, Conan Doyle <laughs> wanted to never write about him again. Okay, you're more into Holmes than I am, but <laughs> thanks for that. Well, yeah, the last poem is um, it's called "Returning the Pencil to Its Tray." Well, it's just my persona um, fooling around. You know, it's it's sort of a promise never to write again. And uh, it's uh, it's I I assure you it's quite hypothetical. <laughs> I don't I don't really mean it. I'm working on a poem as we speak. So, 
could you talk a little bit about, you know, it's interesting that you're, here you are, you're being dragged from Seattle at four in the morning to San Francisco at 11. And I'm just amazed you're like awake and coherent and conscious <laughs> through all of this. Uh, talk about being able to work on your craft in the middle of this kind of turmoil. That's that's really phenomenal. Well, I don't. Not for me. I mean, it's just it's it's just common practice for me. I I, I can write. Uh, uh, basically, I really was flying at six or six in the morning from Seattle down here to San Francisco, and when when this poem uh, occurred to me, and I worked on it on the airplane, and I'll I've been working on it in my hotel room, and it's sort of pretty much done now. Could you? Would you mind reading? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I've never, um, I've never read it before. Let me see if I even have it here. Um, we're taped, right? So we can. Oh yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I have it here. It's it's a. Again, it's it's a love poem, I guess. Uh, I don't know what it's, but it's it's not about anyone in particular. Um, okay, we'll give this a go. It's called Orient. You are turning me like someone turning a globe in her hand. And yes, I do have another side, like a china no one, not even me, has ever seen. So describe to me what's there. Say what you are looking at, and I will close my eyes so I can see it too, the ox carts and all the lively flags. I love the sound of your voice, like a little saxophone, telling me what I could never know unless I dug a hole all the way down through the core of myself to the other side. Billy Collins, Orient. That's, That's lovely. A... Brand new. It's in pencil. I can see here now. <laughs> right. Brand spanking new. That's fantastic. I've been speaking with Billy Collins. His newest collection of poems is Horoscopes for the Dead. Thank you for joining me, Billy. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, truly. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.